Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today we're asking... What happens when artificial intelligence takes over? Now, we're not focusing on or listening to the recent hype surrounding AI. Instead, we're taking a look at the clear economic applications for AI. And we're asking no less an authority than UBS Global Wealth Management Chief Economist and Bulletin Regular Paul Donovan to unpack the theme for us today on the show. Paul Donovan, great to chat to you as ever on the programme. Always lucky to get your insights. I think particularly when there's a real a hot topic of the day. And of course, AI really is one of those narratives. Whatever you read, whatever you watch or listen to, somebody has a, somebody has a view. And I think it's really interesting. What could and should an economist have to say on the matter? Because we talk about AI is coming for your jobs and AI is going to take over. But a smart economist presumably can be slightly more rational and focus on a few key areas, I imagine. Well, exactly. And I think the first thing to say is that from a macroeconomic point of view, the big picture view, AI really isn't that different from any of the other disruptive technologies that we've seen over the last 300 years. When we get a new disruptive technology like this, there are really four areas of clear impact. So the first of these The one that most people focus on, the one that most people worry about is always employment, the jobs market. There's an impact on levels of economic activity. So that's economic growth, standards of living. There's an impact on inflation normally, because with technology, we're talking about changing patterns of demand and efficiencies. And finally, there's likely to be a political impact as a result of the technology and all of the changes and disruption that it's bringing about. So four key areas to focus on. And we know pretty much from looking at past disruptive technologies, the sort of things that we should be trying to identify in those four key areas. Well, yeah, let's cycle through them, uh, Paul. And I think let's start with jobs. As you say, that tends to be where the focus is and for obvious reasons. And actually, in some ways, the developments are somewhat easier to predict because we know that with new technologies come new opportunities and new jobs. And so as AI renders certain jobs redundant, it by its nature creates more jobs to replace some of those. I guess the interesting question, perhaps from an economist's point of view, is what is the speed and what's the smoothness of that process of adoption? That's maybe the the big unknowable. This is the really critical issue because AI is likely to be adopted quite quickly relative to other technology. If you think about the internet, for example, for the internet to really become disruptive, it required lots and lots of people to be participating. And if you think about something like e-commerce, that really only, I think, exploded with people starting to use smartphones as a means of accessing the internet and and engaging in e-commerce. So we have to be a little bit careful with AI because we're not waiting for millions of people to sign up for this. This is a few large corporations signing up will really be quite transformative. So it's likely to be a very rapid process of adoption. Now, that's where the challenge comes in, because if you have a technology which sort of unfolds relatively slowly, that gives people more time to adapt, more time to adjust to the changing 
employment environment, the changing opportunities that are being thrown up. Whereas if something comes through very rapidly, it may be that you're, you're sort of working one month and then your job is obsolete the next month. You may struggle to retrain. You may struggle to adjust your social expectations to you know, go out and find new and potentially different forms of work. And that creates a sort of a friction. Economists call it frictional unemployment, where people are not able to adapt quickly enough to the rapid process of change. Well, yeah. And Paul, before we move on to talk about growth in your your commentary, there was an interesting aside about J.M. Keynes, which I just thought I'd mention because it made me chuckle when I read it. Tell us about this, because this goes back to something that Keynes predicted in 1930 about 2030, which is ostensibly wrong, but actually in a very, in a very real sense, quite quite accurate. Yeah, so Keynes very famously predicted that people would be working 15 hours a week by 2030, which, at least for me, is certainly not the case. And that, on the surface, seems very wrong. But actually, Keynes was sort of right, because what Keynes failed to predict was that there would be a decline in unpaid work. So household chores, doing the laundry, cooking, cleaning, all this sort of thing has become a lot easier and takes up far, far less time than it did almost 100 years ago. So what that meant was, of course, that people gained leisure time. The technology comes in. It's very disruptive, but people gained leisure time. And of course, from the jobs perspective, why does that matter? Well, you've gained leisure time. That means demand for leisure activities goes up. So we now have far more people employed in leisure and entertainment focused industries than was the case 100 years ago, because people have got more time to indulge in leisure and entertainment. Paul, let's move on and talk about AI and growth, because this is another one of those areas where there are some assumptions, I think, that people make that often kind of go unchallenged. One such of those is that technological change and advancement increases the rate of growth. And yet, I guess some economists, some of your ilk, maybe are challenging some of those longer term forecasts. And one can't necessarily rely on the same assumptions as before. Well, yes, exactly. The point about technology is that it should, if it works properly, allow us to do more with less. We become more efficient, we become more productive, we're doing more with less. That's what we use technology for. Now, if we're thinking about this in the past, the focus has been on the doing more part of that equation. But I think now, as we confront the sustainability crisis and climate change and so on, it may well be that more of the emphasis is put on the with less part of that equation. So in other words, we might say, okay, well, here's a fantastic technology, and we can do more with less. So let's actually reduce our dependence on resources, let's become more efficient as an economy, and not necessarily put quite so much emphasis on raising living standards in the sense of higher GDP, but put perhaps a little bit more emphasis on making sure we have a sustainable future by reducing the inputs into our standards of living. But one of the things which will come out of this, I think, is that there will be some increase in living standards, absolutely, particularly for lower income economies. But I think actually we will be putting more emphasis on sustainability and using the efficiency of artificial intelligence to scale back some of the inputs that go into creating today's living standards. Well, Paul, next up, let's talk a little bit about inflation. And again, at the risk of jumping to conclusions and making assumptions again, we talked already about doing more with less. Surely, therefore, it follows that costs go down, greater efficiencies, costs, if not all of them, at least some of them are passed to consumers, and hence 
we have lower inflation. Is that the whole picture? It's not quite the whole picture. I mean, very big picture, and at least initially, yes, that is true. Efficiencies should lead to lower prices and a, a lower cost of living overall. However, there are two important caveats here. The first is that not all prices are guaranteed to go down. Because when you introduce a new disruptive technology, it may lead to increased demand somewhere else in the economy. So, for example, if we go back to the first Industrial Revolution, that started with steam-powered machines that were spinning cotton and woolen thread. And that lowered the price of cotton and woolen thread, and that was great. But then what you got was a huge increase in supply of cotton and woolen threads and the same number of people weaving that into cloth. And so that then pushed up the wages, the costs of weavers. And so what you ended up with was effectively a a bottleneck in the supply chain. And post-pandemic, of course, we're all familiar with what that can mean for certain prices. So it's possible that, for example, artificial intelligence may lower a number of prices in service sector or data processing roles, but it may increase the price of, say, certain computer chips, because there would be an increase in demand for computer chips. So it's a relative price adjustment. The other thing is a a slightly more philosophical issue that comes out of this, which is the potential for what economists call first-degree price discrimination, which would render inflation largely redundant as a concept. So this is the idea that you personalise prices. It's the pricing of the the Middle Eastern bazaar, where you each individual comes away with a good for which they have paid a personal price at the end of a haggling, negotiating process. And this has actually been traditionally how goods have been priced. Before the 20th century, the shopkeeper would know personally who their customers were, and they would vary the price of the goods according to what they knew about their customers. Now, in the 20th century, of course, you know, we go to urban areas, you get you know, huge department stores. The department store checkout operator doesn't know who the customer is personally. And the stores charge one price for the product. So you get a fixed price system. But artificial intelligence would, in theory, allow companies to start, again, changing their prices because AI could learn about the customer, learn more about that customer's willingness to buy a product, how much they're prepared to pay. And so in the longer term, I think you could end up with the breakdown of this sort of fixed price, one price for everybody type concept. And we move into a situation where you actually have an individual personal price, which is based off of AI's assessment of how much you're prepared to pay personally for that product. And that, of course, renders the idea of inflation, which is you know, based off the fixed price concept, really rather redundant. It's a super interesting area. And actually, you and I, Paul, spoke about price discrimination a few weeks ago, if listeners want to dig back into the archive and, and find out more. Let, let's reflect a bit on AI and politics, because it's interesting. If you read, certainly, the mainstream media... Most of the coverage there in this space focuses on the potential damage of misinformation, AI-generated imagery or words, videos. But actually, from the economist's point of view, you think that it's much more significant to look at the substance of policy, social responses in terms of how AI will reshape the political landscape. Yes, indeed. I mean, I don't want to you know, downplay the potential for damage from 
misinformation and doctored videos and images. But frankly, you know, we've had misinformation and doctored images for centuries. I mean, if you, you go back into Tudor England, for example, you know, 500 years ago, you know, the monarchs are, are ordering Hans Holbein to paint them in a flattering way so that they can present a certain carefully curated image to the public. Well, you know, we're used to manipulation of images and indeed of, of, of language and text. So I don't think that that is necessarily quite as big or quite as unusual a situation or quite as big a threat as people might suppose. What I am more concerned about is the speed of the change and the potential for frictional unemployment. You know, these people who are finding it difficult to adjust to a very, very rapidly changing world. And the fact that actually it's a lot of people who would be considered normally to be quite politically active. So middle income groups who tend to be you know, target voters for a lot of politicians. These are people whose lives are likely to be disrupted by the speed of change that comes about as a result of AI. And that brings us back to our, our old problem of, of scapegoat economics, prejudice politics, where people are saying, right, you know, I want to blame somebody for what's going wrong. I don't understand what AI is doing. So therefore, I'm going to blame foreigners or whatever minority group it's going to be. And that is obviously very, very damaging economically and socially over time. But you may then also see politicians reacting in an unhelpful way. So, you know, let's tax robots, for example, deliberately creating inefficiencies in the system in order to try and slow the process of change, slow the process of AI changing the economy. And that doesn't tend to work very well in the long term because you know, you're trying to effectively create inefficiency to preserve outdated ways of doing things. And unless every government on the planet does exactly the same thing, you're going to end up essentially falling behind, living standards deteriorating, and it becomes a far more negative situation overall. So, Paul, just a final thought. I guess then a really interesting takeaway here is that from all of your remarks across these different thematics suggests that, you know, AI will bring change, significant change. It's going to be disruptive. But I sense from what you say, the key takeaway is that we just need to remind ourselves that change isn't new, disruption on this scale even isn't new, and that change needn't be needn't be a bad thing? Exactly. At the end of the day, I think that AI will produce higher living standards, a better quality of life for humanity, which is a good thing. But that is the long-term solution. The change can be very unnerving. It can be very daunting. Human beings don't really, really like change that much when they're going through it. And I think that that's going to be the challenge that we've got to deal with in the near term. And that's Paul Donovan bringing us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle Radio. You can listen again and explore more at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club and subscribe to Monocle magazine. You can always discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.